0: Welcome to the Limitless Possibilities Podcast, episode number 32. My name is Zach Johnson, and I'll be your host. My goal with the Limitless Possibilities Podcast is to bring insights and information through the amazing interviews that I'm able to do, as well as sharing some of my own insights with everybody to try and help everybody get to their next level of life and truly find happiness in the Limitless Possibilities that this amazing world offers. I really am excited if you're a returning listener and you're here. Thank you so much. And I'm really excited if you're a new listener and you're here. I appreciate each and every one of you. And if you could do me a favor and head on over to Apple Podcast and click that subscribe button or on Spotify and subscribe as well and leave a rating and review as that goes a long way to helping me out with the algorithm to be able to spread the message of the Limitless Possibilities. I'm really excited for today's interview as it goes without saying each and every one of us, sometimes we meet or are able to connect with somebody who truly inspires us in ways that we never imagined. And being able to connect with Brenna Mao was a huge thing for me as just a great individual who truly has a story that overcomes resilience and overcomes never giving up on ourselves. And I'm really excited for everybody to hear that. Before we send it on over to the show, I want to talk about today's sponsor, and it's out hustle my yesterday apparel. So you can find them at Timo my. So it's T E A M O H M Y.com. Use the code limitless for 15% off for some of the most comfortable t-shirts, hoodies, hats, face masks, as we all have to wear. Now you'll be able to get all of those on the website, send Duncan a message, send him a follow on Instagram, Let him know that I sent you over and he'll definitely hook you up with some great bands and of course, some great clothes. I truly do wear it all the time. And particularly being in Germany, being in lockdown now, I find myself wearing it every single day because it can be fully functional, whether I'm just hanging out around the house or I'm going out for a walk or run or anything like that. It's very comfortable and it's suiting for every situation. So again, use code limitless at teamohmy.com. T-A-M-O-H-M-Y. One of the big things that I really have tried to be more conscious of lately is in what context am I talking to people? And I talk about that because one of the biggest things that we can do is get frustrated when we're having conversations with people because they're not understanding how we're presenting something to them. But we all have to take a step back for a moment and recognize that people can only understand us on the level that they're at. So one of the things that I've really done to help myself with that is journaling about it being like, what did I get frustrated with in that conversation or why did it bother me? And do by doing that, doing some reflection through the journaling has really helped me to understand where I can break through and make better conversation with people. So if you're a person that maybe lately, particularly with a lot of people being maybe on edge or people being a little bit more hypersensitive, just due to the volatility of the situation we're all facing, maybe just take a step back and try to meet them at their level. Of course, you don't have to dumb down the conversation, but just understand that everybody's going through battles of their own and we truly don't understand everything that's happening. So by just taking that extra breath, by taking those extra seconds to be able to reply, sometimes it helps us a lot. And it's been something that's helped me a lot. I'm really excited for the interview today with Brandon Mao. So let's send it on over and I'll catch you guys on the other side. All right. The next guest that we're really excited to have on to the Limitless Possibilities podcast is an inspiring young man who's battled many illnesses and undergone many multiple surgeries, is a motivational speaker, is a holder of a law degree, is an author, and just overall good guy. Really excited to have you on. Welcome to the show, Brent and Mao.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's pretty neat that we're able to connect like this online.
0: Yeah, the the, uh, the technology of the world nowadays is uh, interesting. I mean, you know, former years, we would have had to be in person or, you know, do it via telephone, but it definitely affluents us a different uh, ability. So I'm I'm excited to have you and be able to get your story out there for sure.
1: Thank you very much. So
0: just kind of diving right into it, obviously, to, to lead off, you know, talked about battling many different illnesses and undergoing surgeries. I know you're very open talking about it. So one thing, you know, you were diagnosed with juvenile diabetes. Can you kind of dive into what that means and what the differences between diabetes are for the listeners so they can understand a different perspective?
1: Yeah. So I have a very unique and strange story. <laughs> so let's, yeah, we'll start from the beginning at age three, I started not acting like myself, my mom says, and uh, apparently I was drinking a lot of water, going to the bathroom a lot, and was really lethargic, which was not my normal personality. So my parents took me to the hospital and they found out that I was a diabetic. So diabetes means that your pancreas, which produces insulin, is not working. And insulin is needed in your body to break down food into energy. So if that's not working, your body has too much sugar going through it, and it's slowly destroying your body. And you feel like crap. You're drinking water because your body's trying to flush, um, uh, flush it out. And that's what happens when you're a diabetic, essentially. So to make up for the pancreas, which produces those enzymes, so your body can digest food and use it accordingly. Uh, You take insulin, and there are different types of insulin that you take. You can take long-lasting insulin for the whole day, and then every meal that you eat, you have to inject per carbohydrate accordingly, or you can... uh, Let me think of the word. Oh, and you can go on a... They have... The really great technology now uh, through the insulin pumps, Mm -hmm. which you still have to function with and they have automatic uh, modes and stuff like that, but it helps people control their diabetes way better. And so that's type one. So from the age of three, uh, had to take shots and test my blood. And the goal is to always keep your blood sugar in the low 100s. The lower it gets, the worse you start feeling because you don't have enough energy to fuel your body because the mm-hmm. insulin's burning it up. And the higher it gets, uh, the more lethargic and the energy drains from you. So, uh, as a type 1 diabetic, it means that you're insulin dependent for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. That's type 1. Type two is a different form of diabetes where your uh, uh, your pancreas is also not producing enough insulin. So instead of it not producing enough to function, it's producing enough to live, but not enough to control what is going on with your body. And a lot of times type two diabetes affects people who are a little bit older because as we age, uh, things don't work like they used to. And a lot of people just assume that if you're diabetic, you're just because you didn't take care of yourself. Or if you're diabetic and taking insulin, or a lot of people say diabetic I've got diabetes, uh, People don't know the difference between type one and type two and type two. A lot of times can be treated by taking oral medication. You don't have to test your blood or take insulin um, or it can be reversed by eating correctly. That's not for everybody. So the main difference between the two is type one diabetes means that you're insulin dependent uh, and type two means that there are many different treatments for you and I'll quick throw in a little statistic just so it makes sense. So diabetes is put into one category, Mm -hmm. and uh, there are in the United States there's between thirty and forty million diabetics, but only one point four million are type one diabetics. So it's a very small number that everyone gets put into. Mm -hmm. So being diagnosed as type one is a pretty rare thing, and then being diagnosed as type one when you're under the age of 18 puts you in the juvenile diabetes category, which is even smaller. So there's, I hope that answers your question and uh, of answering what diabetes is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think for, you know, a lot of people, there is that, you know, distinction between type one and type two where, and then a lot of other people are unaware of it. So I definitely appreciate you diving into that when you were diagnosed with it. Um, I know you've talked, talked a little bit about it in some of your writings and some of the different things like that, the word hypoglycemic diabetic comes up. What does that mean? And I know sometimes the, um, you know, when you've talked about it, you said hyperglycemic diabetic and you were unaware. What does that mean in the spectrum of diabetes?
1: Okay. So have you ever heard somebody say, oh, my blood sugar is low. I need to eat something. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a symptom of hypoglycemia, meaning that the blood sugar is going too low to the point where you're going to stop functioning and probably pass out because there's not enough energy in your body. Mm -hmm. So you have to eat something to bring that blood sugar back up. Um, It can happen from exercise, eating too much. I mean, taking too much insulin, not eating enough. There's a lot of variables to that. And so that was my, that was my problem as I got older in life was the hypoglycemia. Then the hyperglycemia is the opposite, where your blood sugar goes too high. um, And that's from not taking it, basically the opposite, not taking enough insulin, uh, eating inappropriately, um, miscalculating the carbohydrates. There's a lot of factors to that. Um, The best way to remember the two is hypoglycemia. If you have one episode, you can die. And hyper, you can have quite a few of those with not nearly as much damage. So yeah, you'll usually hear people say, uh, oh, I'm hypoglycemic, I need to eat something. And as a diabetic trying to control it with diet uh, and insulin, when you become hypoglycemic, that kind of takes away your ability to control and to live accordingly and um, when it gets so bad that you're passing out and not knowing it, that's when it becomes a, a major, major problem.
0: And so for a person to recognize, obviously, like you said, the technology nowadays is so much more advanced than even you know, 15, 20 years ago. For somebody to recognize that they maybe might be wavering into the hyper or the hypo, is their alarm system set up into You know, the insulin pumps for the people that do have to have the insulin pump or for people that do have to have the testing. Is there things like that set up?
1: Yeah. So I want to say in like 2007, 2008, they really started to start producing, because as a diabetic or someone who wants to know what their blood sugar is, you have to test it uh, Mm -hmm. by giving it a sample of blood and it reads it and tells you. Well, they started developing new things. And by the early uh, 2010s, they started coming out with devices called continuous glucose monitors. And you would stick it on you, um, insert the needle in you and pull it out. And then inside you, you'd have this oh, I forget what it's called, but it's essentially a piece of plastic in your mm-hmm. skin with tape on it. And then the, you you would have a meter and you would scan your meter over it and it would tell you what your blood sugar is. And so that has really helped a lot because now they're able to broadcast what your blood sugar is to your phone or your watch if you're wearing one. And you can have numerous people attached to it. So it, it would remind them that, hey, you're you're running low or you're hypoglycemic um and it has alarms and you set those alarms accordingly so that was a uh that's a newer thing uh for diabetics and it has and it helps a lot of people uh but not everybody
0: yeah of course and and i think that's you know one of those things too like anytime we see innovation in technology especially in the medical field There are so many people that are helped by it that then there are, you know, again, obviously certain cases where it isn't applicable. Has Mm -hmm. that been something that you've recognized that has helped you significantly as well?
1: Um. (laughs) I suppose. So my first answer is no, because when you're hypoglycemic and you can't help it, you can't feel it. And it's happening so fast that it can't even alarm you to it. It has not helped me. But, um, on normal days when I wasn't hypoglycemic and passing out and having all kinds of problems. Yeah. It was really nice to know what your blood sugar is doing without having to poke your finger to get blood five to 10 times a day. Mm-hmm. Every day, You know, like it's a little old uh, after 30 plus years of doing. That.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so obviously when you're, you know, you're, as you said, diagnosed with it at such a young age, you just become regimented in it. Did you really recognize, obviously, you know, we remember uh, as we get older, a little bit of when we were a kid, did you really recognize the differences between When you would be out just doing things as a regular kid to, you know, all of a sudden you would hit that wall because you hadn't been, you know, doing the, getting the sugars or getting the food in the same essence. Whereas some kids can just push through it where you were having to be a little bit more, I guess, maybe not as adventurous because you were having to be more cautious of it. Or early on, had you kind of just pushed through because you weren't having to think about it so much?
1: Early on, diabetes was never something that held me back. Mm -hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to have parents who made sure I lived the most normal childhood I possibly could. Mm -hmm. Um, I played sports. I went to school. I grew up on a chicken farm and I worked every single day. And I would have high blood sugars and low blood sugars. And um, the way to make me feel normal was that it was never a big deal. Um, however, looking back on it now, uh, my parents are always involved. So if it was a student's birthday at school, yeah, when I was young, my mom would make um, sugar-free cookies or bring an angel food cake to make sure that I never felt out of the loop mm-hmm. or never felt odd uh, when I played. Uh, sports. My dad was always the coach. So I was always I uh, an eye was always kept on me. And uh, and it never really made me feel odd. But uh, I have the high and low blood sugars where it kind of wipes you out and makes you feel weird. And uh, so those, those were kind of embarrassing when they would happen in front of other people. But you wouldn't know I was a diabetic otherwise, and I was able to do pretty much everything that everyone else could. So It was a pretty good childhood. I can't complain.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and the reason why I asked too, as well is because one of my really good friends growing up, he was a type one diabetic as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had actually been, you know, a very successful goalie in hockey, as well as he had had a fairly successful baseball career through high school as well. And, you know, if you didn't, if he hadn't made jokes about it, or you had never recognized that he had had his insulin pump on him uh, where he'd had the needle implemented into, um, you know, you would have never known And again, you know, not, uh, I don't think it's something that needs to be pointed out for, you know, when kids are kids, cause kids can be obviously brutal and mean, but I think it's one of those things that there are that instance where my friend and yourself, where you guys were, you know, give the opportunity by your parents, please go out and, you know, be a regular child. And then you see the other side. I know you're a huge advocate for helping awareness to diabetes. And in that, have you seen with some of the technology, a bigger growth of parents letting their kids be more, um, I guess, just advantageous like youth compared to maybe being a little bit more regimented and strict?
1: So, you know, it's interesting because it depends all on the parent. Mm -hmm. And not everyone is the same and people have uh, more problems. But I will say that the ability for uh, parents and families to be able to keep an eye on their kids by using the technology available today allows a lot more freedom. Mm -hmm. But having the technology attached to you all the time also brings... Accidents, ridicule, a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And I will say this, that when I was growing up as a diabetic, you wouldn't know I was a diabetic unless right. I told you because you, you were looked down upon because people yeah. thought that you did something to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Nowadays, being a diabetic is glorified. It's, it's not seen as a disability anymore. It's, it's something that is more accepted in society. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty interesting to see that. and I think that it, it's been really good for people.
0: Yeah. And the, as the awareness, obviously, of, you know, different illnesses and, you know, like onset things that we can't control, become more aware. I think the acceptance in society, in society just overall is such a huge thing that's important, right, to not point out specifics and different things like that. And I really think, um, as you said, you know, there's been a huge progression in every aspect, a lot of way in the world, which has been amazing. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, going through the youth um, through high school and then you end up going to school and you get a, a degree and you become a high school social social studies teacher and then you end up attaining your law degree. What made you want to go into social studies or, I guess, sorry, teaching and then eventually going into law? <sighs>
1: So growing up on the egg ranch, I was supposed to take it over. Uh, You know, that was the whole thing. Um, But in the early 2000s, a bird disease called Newcastle disease came through California. And what it creates uh, in the chickens is it makes a lung infection that is passable to humans through eggs and their meat. So what happens is the government comes in and they gas all your chickens. And uh, at that time, there was no government reimbursement. So overnight we were put out of business Mm -hmm. uh, because our chickens tested positive for it. So my parents kind of scrambled and ended up selling everything, which at the age of 20, (laughs) <laughs> left me with nothing to do because yeah. my whole life it was going to be that egg ranch. So, uh, for two years, I just worked, I worked at UPS and a couple side jobs trying to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. And then I was finally like, you know, well, let me just go to school in high school. I swore I would never go to college. It was the you, <laughs> find me, you find me dead in college, but I was kind of like, I don't really know what to do. And so I, started going to college and I was like okay because at the time uh the affordable care act was not passed and I had a pre-existing condition and I could not get health insurance so I was paying out of pocket for all my doctor's appointments and all of my money went to that it didn't leave me with anything because it is expensive to have an illness and take care of it so I thought well what job can I go into that would give me health insurance without giving me a problem Mm -hmm. and the one that I thought would be attainable for me would to be become a teacher and I had to do it in a subject that I enjoy so yeah I just well not exactly good at math so I went into uh, social studies and I enjoyed it I thought that it was a really good job until I got bored uh, cause I'm used to multitasking, doing crazy things. I never had issues with students mm-hmm. and, uh, I ended up getting two side jobs and including, uh, teaching full time. And I was like, this is not, this is not going to cut it. Um, and so that's when I started looking elsewhere for different things to do. And the whole idea of going to grad school kind of came up and I was like, nah, you know, that's not for me. Um, I'm more of like a personal ownership type of person, uh, Mm an entrepreneur, always trying to do something in addition to what I'm doing. And so someone brought up to me that I should go to law school. I was like, are you crazy? I could go to law school. I I grew up on a farm. I did not care about school. And um, so I was like, you know, what if I actually did shoot for the stars? You know, what would happen? And so I finally decided, okay, Um, my second year of teaching, I took the entrance exam and I did well enough and I got accepted to a couple schools. And it was one of those things where if I were to leave my job, I would be stuck with having to pay COBRA insurance, which is like full price. So if I were at my job, I was paying maybe $120 a month. Mm -hmm. I would go from paying $120 a month to $800 a month if I were to leave that job um, and try to get insurance as a student. So that wasn't possible for me Mm -hmm. uh, to afford that and being a student, I couldn't make enough money. Plus in law school, you're technically not allowed to work Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, while attending. So that kind of left me stuck. And as soon as the affordable care act was passed, I applied, um, well, I I put my um, I had my acceptances and I had my my next year teaching contract right next to each other, and I, I clicked the law school acceptance. And I went to Arizona State University because I was in Arizona and I declined my contract to teach. <laughs> and uh, the principal came, and was like, why? I was, at a, I was at a really big school and I was like, I got, I got to move on from this. And uh, then I was nervous. I was like, okay, I had this insurance at the end of summer. What, <laughs> what happens now? And I, and I called the Affordable Care Act number and I got signed up for insurance and I could I couldn't believe it. Right. With the pre-existing condition, so that is the probably the, one of the biggest things that happened. Um, it, it kind of in my early adulthood was that allowed me this new freedom, where I, for an affordable price, I can get the care and coverage that I needed, and also like seek out new adventures. So that was like the big thing that opened the door for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's you know something that unless you are directly affected by, you know, something where you you need to have that coverage, you don't appreciate what that coverage actually offers to a lot of individuals. And I think that was me coming from Canada, um, growing up in Canada, obviously the Canadian healthcare system is set up significantly different than the United States. And when I was playing college and, um, living in California, playing professionally, I saw a lot of people, um, being against it, right. Being against, you know, against the care act. And then, you know, obviously on the other side, you were a person that was adversely given a huge advantage and given an opportunity to take advantage of it and not suck from the system. So to say, as people would say, but actually you're a person that actually was benefited from it. So I think that's an amazing thing too.
1: Yeah. And I should clarify, uh, like here in the United States, uh, We've never had a universal healthcare system. And mm-hmm. so I think it's very hard for other people to understand how much effort it takes just to get a medication from a pharmacy, mm-hmm. um, to get anything approved. Basically, our insurance companies, they want you to pay full price, and they don't want to cover anything. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a constant battle. And if you don't battle, you're going to lose, and you're not going to get the medication or, or the doctor's appointments that you need. Um. So, please, uh, anyone not from the United States, but <laughs> write our government and tell them why uh, we need to fix some things. Because living with a chronic illness in the United States is a full time job in and of itself, and I I think people just need to understand that. Uh, and it shouldn't be that hard just to live. So, I'm sorry. There's like my little spiel about health insurance
0: i man it's all good you don't have to apologize it's something that obviously you've had you know direct correlation to so you can speak on better than probably most people so i i Completely okay with it. It's all good. <laughs> um, so, is it kind of uh, to kind of circle back as well? too. So, something that you mentioned about you were doing those kind of day to day, you know, finding different jobs to be able to cover your medical expenses. What was it that you were having to cover? Because I think that's something for a lot of people that they don't really understand, too, right? Like, as you just touched on with the insurance, what were the things that you were having to cover? And then, obviously, when you had to have some of your surgeries kind of dive into that. Were you covered at the time when you had that or were you not? And what kind of led into some of those surgeries, I guess, uh, physically for your body?
1: So when I was paying out of pocket for everything, it mm-hmm. Uh, what I had to cover a, as a diabetic is, is insulin syringes. I wasn't on a pump at the time. I had when I when I was younger. Those go for three to four thousand dollars by themselves, and then the supplies per month is a couple thousand dollars if you don't have insurance. So I had to switch to injections, and then uh, it, what. The syringes aren't really that expensive, maybe like $50 a month. And then test strips to test your blood, which you have to do five to 10 times a day, are a dollar a piece. So just add that up. And then you have to rely on insulin to keep you alive. And insulin at the time was about two to $300 a bottle. And I would need uh, two or... Th- well, I was taking two different insulins. So for the long acting insulin I would need one bottle and for the short acting based on my food or corrections would uh, to lower my blood sugar appropriately I would need two. And so by the time you add up costs that's more that's that, then you want to add up car payment on that and, 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 and uh, car insurance and uh, rent it just it's is too much. Mm-hmm. Um So you in here in the United States, we we rely on that kind of coverage um, because otherwise we have to pay full price. Mm -hmm. There is no option. You can't go to another country. It's currently illegal to go to another country and get it where in Canada I, or I live close to Mexico. If I went to either country in Canada, insulin is $25 cash. Mm -hmm. You don't even need a prescription. Mm -hmm. Um, in Mexico, it, it just determines where you go. There's no set price, but it's significantly cheaper here in the United States. But it was it was illegal, so anyways, um, those are my only options. And then leading up to me going to law school, I was as healthy as can be. I would uh, exercise every day. It was playing sports, having the time of my life, and all of a sudden, I wasn't. a a lot of pain uh, in my left side at first it was really sharp and then as it progressed it kind of felt like an elephant was sitting on me and I was like ah because as a diabetic you you go through a lot of a lot I think most people would say it would be a traumatic thing to your body but as a diabetic you're just used to bumps and bruises and scrapes Mm -hmm. and things feel differently. So you have a higher pain tolerance uh, than a lot of people. And so I just chalked up as, ah, I went hiking or, oh, I played that yesterday or, oh, I bumped my I bumped my side. And finally, um, after about five days, it got so bad that I had to go to the hospital. And it turns out it was two kidney stones, the size of your thumbnail stuck in my kidney, moving around, causing all that pain. And I was septic. So, um, I had insurance because of the Affordable Care Act. And this was the first time I had surgery. And I had to go get my kidney stones taken out. And uh, the doctors told me, okay, everything is good. We removed the uh, kidney stones. And you should go back to doing whatever you were doing once you're comfortable doing that. When I got home, I was in the hospital, I think, three days. When I got home my left side was bruised mm-hmm. and all the surgery is done all internally. They go up your pee hole through your bladder, up your ureter and do uh, the kidney. So I later asked, I was like, why am I, you know, why am I all bruised and swollen after the surgery? And I was reassured that everything was good and that they had to really work hard to remove the kidney stones because they were so big. So I just believe that. Mm-hmm. And right after that, I started having a lot more hypoglycemic episodes. My blood sugar would drop lower than I could function. And uh, so like, let me just give you an example of what a hypoglycemic episode feels like and what it probably looks like from someone watching you. So you first start losing the ability to, for me, was always I knew a low blood sugar was happening when... My lips would start get tingly. Um, I would start like sweating really oddly. Like there was no reason for it. Uh, mentally, you can't really process information like you normally can. And then always my like go-to was if I was looking at a textbook or my cell phone, the, I couldn't read it. Mentally, I could not read it. And that meant that my body was running out of fuel and the brain was slowly shutting down non essential things to reserve energy mm-hmm. so uh to someone watching me i probably look drunk <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Um, right and so like i could have full-on conversations but i don't know what i'm talking about i i that part of my brain has shut down so i started having those um more and more often than i normally would and uh that's kind of where the whole hypoglycemic unaware diabetes thing came in was dealing with that for so long to the point of me dying twice being brought back to life being found passed out all over the place um working uh and co-workers would have check on me and see what's going on uh because mm-hmm. i would just lose focus i'd get lost and then getting a diabetic alert dog that would tell me uh would alert me before the CGMs that I was wearing could because my blood sugar would go from a completely normal level to below readable within seconds. So it wouldn't catch it yeah. because the CGMs uh, are reading the, the very last capillaries available in your body. So it's the very end and everything's happening internally. So by the time it can read a low blood sugar and your blood sugar drops that fast, mental, you cannot function. So even if the alarm is going off, I wouldn't hear it because that part of my brain is down. And so that's when it became brittle diabetes, which means no matter what you do, you can't control it. And um, so I was going through that when I was in law school, my last year of law school.
0: And so that obviously is, you know, like you said, it's kind of a shot in you know, totally from the dark coming from, you know, you're highly functioning, you're, you know, obviously going to law school, everything's going well. And then it leads to this craziness of, you know, just ups and downs. So leading off of that, how to keep yourself motivated, to keep yourself from you know essentially just packing it in and giving up. Was there anything that you really leaned on or people that you leaned on? Was there books, um, you know, different things like that that you really leaned on for inspiration? And then what kind of transpired between those episodes leading up to your pancreas transplant as well?
1: Yeah, so I've always been a person that was like, okay, like, What do I need to accomplish or what do I need to do to conquer this issue? And so uh, here I am with this hypoglycemia, unawareness, and trying to figure it out, going to every doctor, uh, reading every book, Googling every single thing that I could, and no one could tell me why. Mm -hmm. And that was just like a killer to me. I need to know why, like, what is causing this? You know what I mean? Is there something else wrong with me? Like, what do I need to know? Why is this happening? Because for my entire life, I was a well-controlled diabetic. So I shouldn't be having these types of complications. Mm -hmm. Um, So at the time, it was me just relying on myself until I got to the point where I couldn't rely on myself anymore um and that was a really big realization for me and so i found out about diabetic alert dogs and i got one and he's probably his name is boone he's a golden doodle he's an awesome dog he looks like a giant stuffed animal and that was the one available. And so I I was able to get him. And what would happen is as soon as my blood sugar started dropping before anything could read it, he would come up and paw me, telling me, Hey, your blood sugar is going low, drink juice. And so he would do that until I would give him a treat. So it actually worked. And by having him that's what kept me motivated. Um, instead of waking up with a blood sugar in my twenties, which means you're you're not functional, and mm-hmm. taking a couple hours to recover, um, and just say, lay, "I'm just gonna lay in bed all day today." Like, fuck this. Why am I? Why am I even trying? I had my dog Boone. I'd, I had to feed. I had to take him outside. I had to go play with him, and it really gave me something to look forward to and rely on to get my ass up and out of bed, even when I physically shouldn't have been able to. So I would say that's, that was my biggest motivation for all that.
0: Which is such a huge thing too. And I think that, you know, obviously in a different realm of dealing, I think that's something for, you know, what you were dealing with. If you ever experienced depression or things like that, you know, that is one of the biggest things, right? Not being able to get out of bed, not being able to, you know, focus, not having. So I think, you know, that is something that even if people aren't dealing with, you know, obviously that extreme of medical, if they're dealing with depression, do you think that would be something that would inspiring to help them too? obviously getting up to find that something that forces you outside of your comfort zone to go and attain to as well?
1: Yeah. So... I think, well, for me specifically, but I think just people in general, if they have or if they can provide themselves something to look forward to, it doesn't have to be the right now, but just Mm -hmm. something, right? Whether it be a concert or the new year, whatever it is, you at least have motivation to look forward to that. And if you can't even find that, then – I always like to tell people, you know, the sun's going to rise tomorrow and you can count on that to so let yeah. that be the one little thing. And that's what really got me through that point. Um, and then it got so bad that I finally went um, to a new doctor's appointment and that's when she said, you're going to die in less than two years because your brain is not meant to shut down and restart that many times. And this was, I, this was happening about 10 times a week where it would be so bad that someone would find me or uh, uh, the EMT, the emergency people were called to say, to constantly save my life. So I knew Physically, I couldn't do it anymore, even though mentally I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so I was seeking some kind of help, um, giving up the why aspect. Now I was just like, okay, now it's, I'm in survival mode. And I finally found a doctor uh, who said, okay, you're going to die in less than two years unless you get a pancreas-only transplant. They're very rare. Only a few hospitals in the United States do them and do them successfully. And... Your insurance is not going to cover it. So you're going to need to beg, borrow, or steal to get this done. And referred me to a transplant hospital. Mm -hmm. And that was all the information I had. I didn't know what the pancreas would do for me. I didn't know how it would solve my hypoglycemia. I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was I was given an answer to something Mm -hmm. I was looking for. And I started um, checking out hospitals and Googling pancreas only transplants to find out that there's very little information about it, but there I was on my way f- trying to get a pancreas only transplant done as soon as possible. Cause I was given a death sentence.
0: Yeah. And what, what year was that, that they had told you all of that stuff was happening? 2016. And then, so obviously leading into that, like you said, that becomes the ultimate motivation, right? Like, Holy shit. If I don't get this going, like I'm, gone so what were some of the steps that you took to be able to raise those funds i know obviously advocating for you know um like as like we spoke on earlier youth diabetics and things like that was a a big initiative but what were some of the other things that you were able to do to raise that and ultimately what was the the number that you had to get to get that
1: yeah. So I had to the so the first transplant hospital that I was referred to in Arizona immediately denied me for candidacy for transplant because I didn't have the funds and my insurance wouldn't cover it. There was no insurance I could get that would cover it, and um, uh, my kidney it eventually my kidney stones. And what I was trying to get to with that, with like it being all messed up, is that they basically destroyed my kidney by trying to remove the two stones. And after eight surgeries, they removed the kidney. So uh, trying to deal with that while I'm working in Washington, D.C., going back and forth from surgeries and – they said that removing the kidney would solve the problem and it didn't it only got worse and uh, insulin is processed through the kidneys so that's why it's believed that the kidney issue is what kind of like started this whole thing so here i am getting denied uh for the surgery and uh calling all around the country to figure out who could do it uh, what where how much it cost no one would tell me because I wasn't in their presence to go through a consultation. So here I am looking at flights to see if I can even fly, who would go with me because I couldn't drive at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to my kidney doctor, a nephrologist, and... He just said, oh, no, you definitely need that transplant. Let me call my friend. His friend happened to be a surgeon at Mayo Clinic, which is one of the best hospitals in the world. Mm -hmm. And they do pancreas only transplants at the one in Arizona. And he called his friend and gave me a referral there. And it kind of put my foot in the door. And I had to come up with $20,000 first to go through the candidacy program where they look at your arteries and your heart and uh, they want to check mentally if you can take care of yourself. And they look at all that and then they decide whether or not you can be a candidate. And when I was told that I could, I was like, okay, what do I have to do now? And they said, you need to raise $250,000 or you need $250,000 more. And you know, they, they, um, explained why it wasn't covered by insurance. And after I sued and I contacted the um, insurance company director and the governor of Arizona, and I kept getting letters stating, stating there's nothing we can do about it while we find it medically necessary. It is an exception under the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act, which allowed me to have insurance, is now backstabbing me, telling me that I can't have what I absolutely need to live. And so if someone told you you needed to have $250,000 cash for a life saving surgery, what would you do?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Like where where would you, where would you start?
0: Go to banks. I mean, try to get loans, things like that. Right.
1: Yep. So I tried all that. I was like, okay, if I sold everything, how much money would I have if, um, I try to get another job. How much money could I make all while thinking, well, the next time I have a low blood sugar, I'm going to die. And um, I had to have a roommate at the time and she had raised money quite a few times before online uh, to go on trips, to go help other people like dig wells and things Mm -hmm. like that she's like we got to put you on social media and i was like nope not happening i was a teacher students stalked me i'm i'm you know i'm now a professional no one needs to know what's going on in my personal life that's right not required so instead of doing that i wrote letters to my family members telling them what was going on um why i needed the money the options i looked into going to india um because I'm like any, any way possible, what can I do? Um, course, one family member helped me significantly and it was only after one person started helping other people kind of came in. Uh, and so then I, then my roommate put everything on GoFundMe and started sharing it all over social media and people from all over the world were messaging me and, uh, I was able to raise the money in three months. Don't ask me how. Don't ask me why. All I know is I was determined and uh, it happened as it was supposed to. I don't know. I don't know why, but it did. And right. so I got listed after three months and they said, okay, the it could be up to three years before you get called in. And I'm thinking, well, shit, um, it's already been almost two years since I was told I was going to die. And I'm just thinking, oh, "What? Well, then what happens to all the money? I, but I really didn't care. I was determined no matter what, whether it works or doesn't, And they, you know, they kept saying death, 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 death. I'm just thinking, ah, just do it already. And so, um, two months after I was listed, The day after Christmas in 2018, I got the call to come in. And I was told that uh, I would be called in quite a few times before it would be an actual match. And a transplant in the United States is based on your blood type and your HLA. And your HLA is in your blood and it reacts to things and they have Mm -hmm. to match that as well. Um, And it, uh, so there's like a third party organization that you have to go through called UNOS here in the United States and they're in control of sections and organs and uh, it just so happened that all I know is it was a brain dead donor Uh, and I got the call and they said can you be here within two hours and I said I hope so and I started making my way to the hospital not knowing what was going to (laughs) happen.
0: And then, so obviously when you arrived there, everything was a match and you were, you had surgery that day or was it, how did that, all that whole process go?
1: Yeah. So here I am with this call. I, I, they kind of give you instructions like, Mm -hmm. Hey, um, you want to set up a call list in case you don't answer the phone. We will call three other people on your behalf to make sure that, you know, we're linking someone be in contact with you. I have all that set up. I had notes for uh, my mom who was going to fly out to take care of me post-surgery because you need people to care Mm -hmm. for you and stuff like that. Uh, I had all that in order and just waiting for it, and I didn't need any of it. (laughs) Um, I answered the phone. I went in not knowing what to expect, but the labor waiting for me at the hospital, I went in through the emergency room, and I gave them my name. All of a sudden, the doors open up, and a lady is like, Brendan, come on, come on. And I was like, why am I running? She's like, start taking off your clothes. I'm in the hallway. I'm like, well, okay. And um, I take on the gown. They rip out my, my pump and my CGM, and they start asking me questions. They're, they're taking blood. Uh, I'm meeting with everybody, and then the surgeon comes in and starts talking to me, who's one of the greatest and kindest people I've ever met. And all of a sudden they're like, it's an exact match. We're taking you back. And that was less than 20 minutes from you walking through those of doors. Course. And, um, when I woke up, cause it, I mean, it was a whirlwind. I do not know what was going on. Of and course. Uh, the anesthesiologist before putting me out said, you're going to remember this Christmas, uh, and I was like, well, like, what does that mean? You know, and I woke up, I wasn't in any pain. Um, there was a nurse poking uh, where they put the pancreas, which is below your right kidney. Um, and it's attached to your small intestines. And she was kind of poking there to make sure it wasn't bleeding. And I was like, was it successful? Was it successful? She goes, yeah, your blood sugar is 89. That was the first time in almost two full years my blood sugar was above 40. And, uh, I was just like, this is unbelievable. Like, how can this be true? I I didn't believe that for myself after going through so much, just confusion and pain and, and so much anxiety from going to bed, knowing I'm not going to wake up tomorrow without somebody's help to the point where my blood sugar is normal. Uh, that was quite a realization to take in at the moment. And, uh, it makes you, it makes you just question everything. Like what, you know, what, what did I do wrong? Why did I do this attitude to all of a sudden, Oh my gosh, I'm alive. Like you, you, you become so thankful instantly. It, it's pretty amazing.
0: And so obviously just the, you know, the rush of emotions, right. You went from, like you said, not knowing every day, what was if anything was going on and to then being told, hey, you know what, you're back into the realm of normality with, you know, your blood sugars and things and things are coming back. How long of a process was it to go from surgery to obviously leaving the hospital to being able to get back to kind of somewhat of normalcy?
1: So they say the healing process is six weeks. And they are not kidding. Um, I've always jumped back up and like returned to exactly what I was doing before. But my body was so beat up internally from the hypoglycemia for so long that Mm -hmm. I couldn't just jump up. I also had to start taking medication instead of insulin now because the pancreas uh, is now producing its own insulin. I was no longer insulin dependent. Mm -hmm. Um, They say it's a cure, but it really isn't because the organ can fail at any time for The most simplest of things. I've been in rejection twice. And, um, but I have to, I now, I I basically switched out insulin for anti rejection medicine. And that takes a, a really big toll on you. It makes your hair fall out, makes you tired all the time. But it kind of returns this aspect to your brain it's a new spark for life. So I didn't care about any of that. I just wanted to get better so I can go enjoy it. I was like, I need to travel. I need to do this. I need to just get the fuck out of Arizona. Cause that's where like everything happened. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do that at month three. So it took me about three months to completely heal enough where they would give me permission to leave. And uh, so I would say it's a pretty intense healing process.
0: Yeah. And so, This obviously you were given the diagnosis in 2016 that you had only had two years. The surgery happened 2018. And so obviously now since then you said you've gone into rejection twice. What does that mean for your body to reject the the transplant?
1: So it means that my body is not accepting the new organ and the medication that I was taking was not strong enough to prevent my immune system from fighting it so Mm -hmm. the anti-rejection meds tell uh purposefully suppress my immune system from fighting and that means cold that means the flu that Mm -hmm. anything um so you take a bunch of medication to help your body fight that including the anti-rejection meds and so Uh, every week I was getting lab work done and they look at two different levels to see the function of the new organ. Mm -hmm. And they know immediately if it's going into rejection, if those levels spike. So thankfully we were able to catch it both times um, and treat it. But now I'm dealing with the problem of getting the correct medication to prevent it from rejecting while still being able to live, um, some, somewhat of a normal life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, we're always, uh, the doctors and I are always, um, changing up medication, trying different things to see what is the best for it. But the reason why they don't do very many pancreas only transplants is because they're very fragile. Um, so they do less than a hundred of them here in the United States per year. And uh, this is what they worry about is that rejection. And because it's all private hospitals, they don't want uh, a negative result. They don't yes. want it to go on their numbers that something rejected so they do everything they can to take care of you. So the first one I went in for 10 days of heavy steroids, and that helped that one. And the second one was steroids and something else because steroids are anti-inflammatory. And uh, now we just are watching it close to make sure it, it doesn't reject. And in the meantime, I'm, I'm doing all I can to live life because <laughs> I don't think I'll get another chance um, at it. So I'm going to use this one to my buy- best abilities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so obviously going right off of that, you have a book set to release next year. Do you want to touch a little bit on that kind of what that is going to all entail? And then obviously really kind of just using your story to be able to be, you know, motivational. I mean, definitely, obviously just communicating with yourself. I can feel, you know, motivation for a lot of different things. And, you know, like I said, to onset the interview, definitely very inspiring. And so you're using that as a platform for motivational speaking. So a little bit about the book, if you're, if you want to dive into that and then obviously what the being able to be a motivational speaker for other people means to you as well.
1: Yeah. So it, it's not like I suddenly decided, Oh, I'm just going to write a book and, and go talk about my journey. Cause it's a crazy journey that a lot of people don't understand. Absolutely. But what I found by having to put myself online and to keep people updated especially because so many people donated to my gofundme to save my life mm-hmm. that i then started keeping up with my progress my healing progress what i was doing uh through instagram um but about month five post transplant the fifth month i went into an appointment and the doctor walked in and started crying And I was like, ah, no. Oh, no. And she just said, I can't believe it, Brandon. You are here and you're alive and you look great. Like, you you know, you're full of life. And um, I said, why are you telling me this now? And she goes, well, this is the first time I am seeing you um, since evaluating you when you came in uh, to see if he could be a candidate. And she told me, basically, it was a very hard fight in the room. Um, cause a lot of people didn't want me to have the transplant, but she says, I knew that if you got it, you'd be able to live a full life. And she goes, just seeing you. She goes, you were a, you were a walking zombie. Um, and now you're, you're, you're just, your eyes are full of life. She goes, you need to write a book, uh, saying what motivated you and talking about your life because there's a lot of people out there who need motivation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, okay, like whatever. And then on uh, online, I started getting messages from people who've had transplants who were just diagnosed as diabetics uh, who wanted to know about pancreas only transplants who are diabetics. And there's a lot of just illness and motivation that is online. I should say lack of motivation that's online because people like to talk about the negatives. And going through everything that I have in life, it kind of, after getting a second chance, makes you look at the brighter side of things. Um, Caring less about what other people think, doing more enjoyable things. Every day is a gift. And so uh, that's when the motivational speaking aspect comes into it. So the book which was supposed to be released this summer, um, but could not happen? Uh, it was to allow me to go and speak to larger audiences and uh, give my story and just motivate people just to not give up because the sun is going to rise tomorrow and there might be an opportunity for you to accomplish something. So that's kind of what I'm doing right now. I'm motivating people. I'm informing people about stuff that they would never know. I'm bringing awareness to diabetes and transplantation and had someone not died and had been an organ donor I would not be alive today and so just that alone sits on sits on my shoulders every day and I don't want to let anyone down and uh, it really changed my perspective so I don't care what I'm doing for work I don't care what is going on I am thankful for the day and I have good days and I have bad days, but it doesn't stop me from living. And that's, the book goes in more detail about my life and how I got to the point. And my, my speaking is more about just, hey, be grateful, change things you don't want to do and uh, move forward. And, and so that's what I try to promote. I, I uh, Make sure people don't feel alone because everyone struggles and battles things every single day. And uh, I've been through it all. (laughs) Um, You know, people have it way worse than I do. uh, And most people have it better. But it's nice when you can relate to somebody. And so I put my message out there.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, really inspiring what you're doing. I think, you know, obviously, like you said, you could be, you know, a bitter person where, uh, this was against me, or you could take it in stride and be like, you know what, I was given a second lease on life, and now I'm going to use that as an opportunity to motivate others. So I think it's really inspiring and admirable what you're doing, and I I commend it a lot, man. I like it a lot. If somebody wants to get in contact with you um, via social media, via email, or via website, where would be the best place for them to go?
1: Yeah. So please reach out. <laughs> Learn more about me. I answer every message everything because i think everyone deserves to be heard right mm-hmm. and so uh my last name is mao m like mary o-u-w so branded that's where everything is um or you can find me on instagram which is mm-hmm. what started everything at brandon mao official and uh yeah let me know if uh you have any questions because it is some interesting stuff. And I try to clarify and, and bring awareness to it and I'm enjoying it. And, uh, I'm not a victim of my circumstances. And so I love it. And so all those
0: links will definitely be in the show notes for anybody listening. You can find all those links there. One thing that I'll kind of finish on here during all that time, obviously, you know, to be able to keep your emotions kind of level without, letting it be the roller coaster of the situation that it could have been was there anything that you leaned on in the sense of like journaling or meditating or breathing or any of those practices that you really use then or something that you developed now to kind of help you stay i guess more consistent and as you said just appreciate every day for what it is
1: yeah so Things that I did to help pass the time because I couldn't be physically active mm-hmm. because it would uh, burn the energy in my body and cause more lower blood sugars, mm-hmm. which I had no control over. But what I could control is what I did every day, meaning uh, if I was physically active, if I was taking care of myself, those types of things. And I found uh, podcasts and um writing down goals that I wanted to achieve, uh, very helpful, just small things like um, go for a walk, um, make sure I eat at least two times a day, things like that to remind me and and to set a goal. And a really good podcast that brought on a bunch of different perspectives that I appreciated was Joe Rogan at the time um, through podcasts. And, uh, so when a new episode came out, it always gave me something to look forward to. And I think that's really helpful, uh, to always have that ability to have something to look forward to.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think that's, you know, something that you've touched on a few times and, uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on again, man. I think there'll be a lot of, a lot of people that will pull, you know, some amazing insights out of there as well as just hearing your story. And I definitely encourage everybody to reach out to you as well. And, you know, obviously follow along with your story, but as well to, you know, reach out to you via your website as well.
1: Yeah, thank you. very. Let me just be really cheesy right now. Like, you know, your, your, your podcast is about limitless possibilities. And I, I am an example of that. What I thought to be impossible to became possible. And that can happen for anybody. You just have to put in the effort. So thank you very much for having me on. I, I truly appreciate it.
0: It's my pleasure, man. It's, uh, you know, I think it's uh, probably brought as much to me as it will to the guests, just listening to your story and being able to connect with you further. So I really appreciate it a lot.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Hey guys, I hope you really enjoyed that interview with Brandon. I know that while I was conducting the interview, there was a few times that I had a few pauses just because listening to his story was quite overwhelmingly inspirational. And in the best way possible, you know, looking at a situation where you're up against death and just confronting that full head on and truly just grabbing life by the horn, so to say, and living life to the fullest. And one thing that I really admire about Brandon is, of course, not giving up, but also just really taking his time to give back and truly show how much life means to him. and. You know, something that I took out of the interview, and I'm sure each and every one of you can take something out of there as well, is that living life and giving back to others and truly appreciating life um, is something that we really all need to do a little bit more. So I really appreciate Brandon coming on again, and uh, hopefully that you're as inspired as I was, because I can't say enough about how inspirational he truly is. I will definitely keep everybody updated through the channel and through the podcast as to when Brandon's book will be coming out next spring. If everything works out in coinciding with the current situation, I will definitely let everybody know. So look for that in spring 2021. I hope you all have a great week and I really look forward to connecting with you next Monday. If you're looking for something to do over the weekend, definitely maybe start looking into journaling. If you want to get into that, look at the bullet journal method by Ryder Carroll. If you also want to dive a little bit deeper into the complexities of the mind, or maybe just the constructs of how things are going for yourself, look at The Miracle Equation by Hal Elrod. Those are both two great books that I would recommend checking out, and those will be linked in the show notes. As well, maybe if you're looking for something just to calm your mind and slow yourself down, look into some deep meditation or some breathing. As I've talked about in former episodes, there's some amazing free apps like Insight Timer, There's also some amazing guided meditations that you can find on YouTube or just on Spotify or anything like that. So whatever you need to do, find something to be able to clear your mind. No matter what you're up to, try to find your limitless possibilities in everything that you do. I look forward to continuing down the road of limitless possibilities with you all, and I'll catch you next week.